podcast. We're a pioneer church based in Loughborough in the UK. Our mission is to make disciples to establish heaven on earth. So as you said, we've been journeying through this series of At the Table over the last few weeks, looking at biblical radical hospitality. And I have the pleasure to talk to you today about grace at the table. So to begin, I'm going to invite you on a little imaginary adventure with me. So close your eyes for a moment. Imagine the scene. It's Sunday. It's about noon. You're sitting at the table, which is laid, bursting with fresh vegetables and tender meat, jugs of thick gravy and crispy stuffing. The delicious smell wafts up as you load your plate, not holding back. Stacking Yorkshire puddings three high and finding space for just one more golden roast potato. You lift your fork and pause. Something comes first before you can take that mouth-watering bite. Dear God, thank you for the food. Thank you for a nice day. Amen. This is my experience of grace at the table growing up. You can open your eyes now. Maybe some of you can relate. It was a bit of a tradition, as Luke mentioned earlier on in this series. It was usually said at that pace and with that level of interest. The interest was in the food, really. The prayer felt like a gate in our way that we had to open to get there. And we would rip it off its hinges without any thought about why it was there in the first place or who had crafted it and installed it or about what it really meant. This type of grace at the table, the act of saying thanks, has a long history that can be seen in the Bible as far back as Deuteronomy where the Israelites are instructed to praise God once they've eaten, for he's the one who gave them good land that produces good crops. It's called grace in English because of its Latin roots. Think gracias in Spanish or grazia in Italian. They both mean thank you. So to say grace at the table simply means to be thankful for the food that we've been provided with. Because generally, we've done very little to receive that food. Most of us, with the exception of a few keen gardeners, have not had to sow seeds, water and weed, reap the harvest, or put in a huge amount of effort to put food on our tables. We simply pop down to Lidl, give a wave to Levi if he's working, and after half an hour's cooking, we're ready to go. So food is a great gift, a grace in itself. For the definition we might know within a biblical context is that of the undeserved favor of God. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9 states, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And what does that grace look like? How are we saved? Well, it looks like Jesus, grace personified, the one who died for our sins. John 1 tells us, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have, received all, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through, through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Similarly, Romans 5 verse 15, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? And again, Acts 15, verse 11, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. 
So let's take a look as, at Jesus as grace in action. If you've got your Bibles or your phones, if you turn to Luke 7, verse 36 with me. Luke 7, verse 36. I see you, Renee, you've already forgotten. <laughs> so <it's me. laughs> Let's call you out there. Are we all there? Luke 7, verse 36. So when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, that's about a year and a half's wages, and the other 50, a couple of months' wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So I'm just going to dive straight in. It was seen as scandalous for the woman to do this to and for Jesus. Simon is aghast that Jesus would allow this to happen. We don't know for sure what sinful life this woman led. It's generally assumed that she was a prostitute. But scripture doesn't actually go into the details of her sin. The focus is on her outrageous act of repentance and worship. But we do know she was looked upon unfavorably, considered the lowest of the low in society. It's hard for us to grasp what that looked like in today's culture. We're not as blatant about our hierarchies and class systems and the people we consider unworthy. We think about Jesus eating and hanging out with the tax collectors and prostitutes, the criminals and the outcasts, and we tend to think of petty thieves and liars and homeless people. But let's consider for a moment how scandalous this would be in today's time. Jesus spending time with the lowest of the low. Jesus eating with paedophiles and white nationalists and serial killers. A heroin addict with a string of jail stints to their name, kneeling down and weeping over Jesus' feet. 
A politician fired for a series of affairs while his wife carries their unborn child, breaking open perfume at the foot of his savior. A human trafficker responsible for the abuse of hundreds of vulnerable young women, totally forgiven at just a word from Jesus. When I was writing this talk, I found myself going round in circles, struggling to express and articulate my thoughts and feelings, and I realized something. I don't really understand grace. I don't get it. I can wrap my head around the definitions, but I cannot comprehend the enormity and significance and abundance. I can't understand why God would do that, because it's not in my nature to show the same grace to others. There are people I think are undeserving. This analogy that Jesus uses of the moneylender points out that grace is given to all, regardless of the amount of debt. Both people owed money. They were both undeserving of their debts being wiped clean, but they were wiped clean. And when I apply that to real people and sin and wrongdoing, I find it a lot harder to accept. See, the real scandal is grace. And the scandal of grace is that those who sit at the table, unwashed and messy, late and empty-handed, receive the same reward as those who spent the whole day cooking, cleaning, and preparing. Let's just take a moment to breathe, to process, to chat on your tables about that. How do we feel about God's grace for others? I'll give you a couple of minutes.
Okay, let's come back together. You've just finished your discussions. So this is big stuff. It's provocative. It's maybe even offensive. But it could just change the way we do hospitality. You see, God's grace transforms the outcast, the sinner, the unworthy, and the unclean. This man in the story, Simon, whose house Jesus was eating at, was a Pharisee. The Pharisees get a bad rap for their religiousness and their self-righteousness, but they started out with good intentions. Sin got the Israelites into exile. The Pharisees believed no sin and holiness would restore Israel and bring blessing. We've already heard that grace can't be bought through works, but they tried, and the ways they tried to achieve this were very exclusive, with strict rules and rituals around cleanliness and purity. And this was really hard to attain, particularly for the poor, whereas uncleanliness they considered contagious. And Jesus comes along and he turns this totally on its head. Back in Luke 5, we see him touching and healing a man with leprosy. And rather than the man's uncleanliness passing to Jesus, Jesus' grace and healing spreads to the man, washing him of the leprosy, restoring his health. We see this too here in Luke 7, that this woman's sins and wrongdoing don't taint the perfection of Jesus. As she cleanses his feet, he's cleansing her heart and bringing forgiveness. What does that look like in our houses and round our tables? Are we concerned that inviting messy people in will contaminate our homes? Or do we believe that the grace that rests on the places we inhabit could actually capture the hearts of the people who step over our threshold? The grace we've received is undeserved. So the best response is to persist in sharing it with others, including those who we feel don't deserve a seat at our table. That doesn't necessarily mean we all need to go out and find every criminal we can and bring them home for tea. It might start smaller and closer with people we don't agree with or don't particularly like or those we feel have wronged or rejected us. A table is a place where forgiveness can be enacted. New Testament scholar Scott Barchi writes that it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. And I think this is still true in our culture. A meal invitation goes a long way in building bridges and mending broken relationships. Serving and welcoming someone can be a practical way of changing our hearts towards them. You can't serve two masters, Jesus said, and he was talking of this in the context of money, but I think it's true here too. We can't engage in authentic hospitality and at the same time harbour unforgiveness or resentment towards someone. Sometimes that hurt in our hearts is born from past rejection, where we've tried to extend a hand and a home and it's not been appreciated or well received. But if we're to model godly grace at the table, it's determined and it's constant. Author Miroslav Volf says, God continues to give, refusing to make giving dependent on our receiving things rightly. 
We've talked a lot about the differences between entertainment and hospitality in this series, and it's worth considering here too. Entertainment is an act of reciprocity that demands or expects something in return. Hospitality is simply generosity. Entertainment is for the in crowd. Hospitality is for the outsiders. It literally means the love of the stranger or outsider in Greek. Philozenia, xenos meaning stranger, outsider or foreigner, philo meaning love. So hospitality is first a heart posture that then leaks out in tangible acts. It's aimed downward, not upward, not seeking to please or impress those we deem above us, but instead aiming to welcome, to love, to accept those who may have a harder time in life than us, or who we're angry with, or fed up of, or don't have the patience or time for, or who have historically rejected us. So, who do we need to persist with or re-invite? Again, let's just take a moment. You can chat on your tables if you want, or you might just want to think about it. Does anyone spring to mind? Great, let's come back together. And I'll wrap up with this. An old youth leader of mine used to say, grace is a safety net, not a trampoline. And he had good intentions. He was encouraging us to live lives of holiness. But I don't think that quite captures the wonder of grace. It's not passive or stationary. It pursues us relentlessly. It gives us attention and affection and reaches out its hand to move the perfume-soaked hair from our faces, look into our tear-filled eyes, and declare our sins are forgiven. And this is the example of Jesus, who we are called to follow and to imitate. What does it look like for us to show such radical and unrestrained grace at our tables? Well, I think it looks a bit like inviting those who we don't think deserve it, opening ourselves up to scandal, trusting that God's grace will protect our hearts as it transforms others' lives, and persisting in pursuing and demonstrating grace even as it pursues us. Going back to Luke 7 and this beautiful story of the woman pouring out perfume and tears over Jesus' feet, this posture of foot washing is one of humility and servitude, lowering yourself to honour the other. Elsewhere in the Bible, in John 13, we see Jesus washing his disciples' feet, telling them, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said not everyone was clean. It's a profound act of grace. It's symbolic of being washed clean by the grace and forgiveness of God. And Jesus instructs and invites us to do the same to physically demonstrate receiving that grace so that we can demonstrate it to others around our tables. So this is what we're going to do in response. And this might be weird. It's not part of our culture. 
you might find it very uncomfortable. I don't like feet at all. Mine are very ticklish. And let's just name it, it's an extremely hot and sweaty day. But if you're up for it, there are stations around the room where you can give this a go. Alternatively, there's a bowl over there where you could wash your hands instead, or you might just want to sit and reflect and pray. But maybe get into pairs or groups. You might want to do this in your small group. And as you wash each other's feet, pray for each other that God's grace would pour out on us until it overflows to those around us, in our families, at our workplaces, and around our tables. And when we've served each other and are ready to eat together, break bread and drink wine to remember the biggest act of grace, Jesus on the cross, God's free gift to bring us forgiveness and salvation.